Welcome to the Lot Carey Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving podcast. I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie, pastor of the First Baptist Church of New Market in Piscataway, New Jersey, and learning coordinator for Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving. The Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving weekly podcast grows from a multi-year journey among pastors committed to flourishing in ministry. This is a project of the Lot Carey Foreign Mission Society and is made possible through the generous support from the Lilly Endowment. Learn more about Lot Carey and how it helps churches to extend the Christian witness throughout the world at lotcarey.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot org. Join us for weekly conversations with pastoral thought leaders who share wisdom from the Black church for the whole church. Let's join Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goatley, Associate Dean for Vocational Formation and Christian Witness at Duke Divinity School and the Project Director for Lot Carey's Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving. It's our joy to welcome Dr. James A. Forbes, Jr. Dr. Forbes is the Senior Minister Emeritus of the Riverside Church in Manhattan in New York. And he is also consulting faculty at Duke Divinity School, among many other areas of leadership and ministry uh, across the years. Dr. Forbes, Thank you for joining us in our conversation today about pilgrimages of striving and thriving. I'm delighted to be with you. Looking forward to this conversation. Wonderful. Well, uh, for a few years, more than 50 pastors have been on a journey together toward flourishing in ministry. Our assumption is that every round does not go higher and higher that flourishing in ministry requires both striving and thriving, and that flourishing in ministry can be understood like a tree. Sometimes there are leaves, sometimes there are blossoms. Other times leaves may be falling away and then there are times where there are only branches, but still the tree can be healthy and thriving. So while that's one way to think about flourishing in ministry, can you describe for us what flourishing in ministry looks like to you? It's a very interesting question that you have raised. It has required me to do a lot of rethinking. For an example, in creation, I think one of the first things the Lord urged us to do is to be fruitful and to multiply. So that I begin with creation, if that's our, as creatures, that's our assignment, all of us. In a sense, being is ministry, Just, just, just being. And as a human being created by God in the image of God, my big problem, this is a problem, of defining what 
ministry is, but much more flourishing ministry. Because how do I know what flourishing is? Unless I have some communication, either through the biblical word or through a prophetic unction or through a spoken word from the very mouth of God, how do I know what God even wants me to do? And how would I know if I'm doing it well? So the, the thank you for raising this question for me, because basically, if I think about flourishing in ministry, I could think about how much money am I making? How many members do I have? How much impact can I claim in regards to our community? How long have I lasted the wiles of the devil? All sorts of questions like that. I don't think that's going to give me the answer you're asking about. So could I simply go back and say, if we're going to have a conversation about flourishing in ministry, we got to think about what does God desire of us? And how do we know how we are doing in regards to what God is requiring of us? And when is the final exam? Or when is the midterm? At what point does God do the assessment or the accounting? So if, if you were, I would say, I don't want to talk to anybody about flourishing in ministry unless they are prepared for the calculus of the assessment of God's will, God's measuring, God's plumb line, God's fiat, well done, good and faithful servant. So if you want to know what, what does feeling good about ministry look like, that's one thing. But if you want to know what God would be able to say, now that's, that's what I had in mind. So for me, flourishing in ministry is being engaged in that which God considers to be, oh, that's the, that's, that's the plan I had in mind. How do I fit into that determines whether I am flourishing in ministry according to the mouth of the Lord that has spoken it. Thank you so much for, for helping us to think afresh uh, about uh, being faithful to what the Lord is calling for and uh, hoping, hoping we can hear God say, now that's what I wanted you to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We've, been, um, we've been thinking uh, methodologically about ministry and uh, have been exploring something that we call a formula for flourishing, not the formula, but a formula for flourishing. And it goes something like this, that if a pastor takes seriously her or his capacity and her or his context and allows capacity and context to yield the content of ministry, that there is a higher probability for flourishing. 
Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not an equation, but a formula that capacity and context should yield content. Or put another way that if a pastor builds a pastor's content out of capacity and context, then there is a higher probability for flourishing or perhaps, as you were saying, uh, being uh, in the place where God wants us to be. Mm-hmm. Could you talk to us a bit about when you were a pastor at the Riverside Church, how did your context of service inform your content of ministry? Well, first of all, when I accepted the pastorate at Riverside, that was the first African-American pastorate or leadership that they had had. And so it became necessary for me to figure out where am I? Who are these people? How do they think? How do they hear the gospel? How do they respond when they hear? So let me suggest, know them that labor amongst you and esteem them highly for their work's sake reminds me, I had to try to figure out who these people, listen, I, I, I thought I knew black folks pretty good, but as you understand, the Riverside Church that I went to at the time was 60% white and 40% black. Now, when I say I thought I knew these black people, I don't think I knew my black people. Why? Because people who had come to Riverside Many of them had come from down in the valley in Harlem, were glad to be up on Morningside Heights. So some of these people are not like the people that I had left down at my daddy's church at Providence Holy Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. I had to learn something about them. And I had to learn something about their history, about the pastors that had been there before me, what had they said? What had they encountered? I had to learn something about the Rockefeller culture, uh, the corporate mentality, all of this stuff. To try to come and treat Riverside as if, oh, no, it's just another church, just like Holy Trinity in Wilmington, North Carolina, Uh, is just like St. John Holy Church in Richmond, Virginia, is to ignore the context and therefore to significantly affect any kind of flourishing, even if I do have to wait on the Lord to say, that's what I had in mind. So, so, uh, which is why I sometimes wonder about pastors who go to churches and somebody meets them on the street and says, oh, you at this church? Now, now um, what, what is your plan for ministry at that church? 
<laughs> so if you answer too quickly, before you know the people, before you know what they're thinking about, before you know what they've been through, before you know what the major battles are, before you know the major clicks that they are there, you, you're not quite ready to flourish. So please, I agree with your formula. If you, if you don't take the context seriously, you perhaps do not well to be congratulating yourself about your flourishing. So you were you pastored in Manhattan, and uh, can you give us an example about something in the Riverside Church or in the city of Manhattan? Can you give us just an example of something that you, in your ministry that was directly in response to serving either in that church or in that city? Well. As a New York pastor, there is a rhythm in the city, and your ministry needs to take seriously that rhythm. Even if you propose a counter rhythm to the rhythm of the city, at least you ought to know what you're trying to do. In my sense, there's a style. I remember my first Palm Sunday service. I had to preach about order or order. <laughs> Man, I come from a church that specializes in, in order, excitement, praise the Lord, hallelujah. I had to look, these people are looking at order. In fact, one of the first problems I had was trying to figure out what energy can be appreciated here. Because I had come up at least with this theory. In regards to worship, try to make sure that there is as much freedom as can be corporately enjoyed. Isn't that an interesting thing? Say, say, I can, oh, I can be carrying on. I mean, I can be doing my thing. I can, boy, boy I can, I can, I can, I can, I could be having a hallelujah, Holy Ghost time by myself, which would be like being in an orgy and I'm the only one disrobed. I think being at Riverside required me to learn the difference between being in what I had been in for a while. My father had built a storefront church over in, in Queens. And I, in the interim, had gone over to help him out. Guess what? There's a difference between speaking to people in a storefront church and speaking to the 2,500 people, how do I manage to regulate my voice so that when I speak, I project my voice so that it can be heard even with the microphones on a, by the last person up in the second balcony. You got to get used to the difference. You got to figure out 
your voice tone, your voice approach, as well as your style. Now, in my church, if I'm pastor, I'm kind of in charge. At least I thought I was. As Riverside, they have the Social Justice Commission. They have the Trustees Commission. They have the Youth Commission, the Christian Education Commission. They had all these commissions. And each commission seems to think that actually that I don't work for the church, that I work for that commission. How do we navigate between pastoring the church and pastoring with a commission of people who have a sense of shared ownership of the programmatics you project, as well as the way you go about carrying it on? I think those are some examples of there's a difference when you when you brought pastor by yourself and when you got a commission that would like to vote on everything that you're going to propose in that particular area. Uh, so there are, are many different, the rhythm of the city, the style of the church, the patterns of leadership and of response means that a whole lot of learning that you didn't get while you were in seminary has to take place because each context brings its own curriculum and you got to learn that stuff as well as what you learned in the seminary. So you've talked about the context and how context informs content of ministry. I'd like to ask you to say, uh, to talk to us about a different part of that form formula we've talked about, capacity. Um, can you give us an example of, from your ministry, of something that you had to develop in terms of your capacity over time? This will sound strange. One of the things that I wrestled with at Riverside was my first big battle. William Sloan Coffin, famous guy, great guy, was pastor before. His, his ministry was organized largely around preaching the gospel, of course. He was a good preacher. But his work had a public profile of social justice activism that was not my forte protects. Not that, not that I had not always, as long as I'd been in ministry, been committed to social justice, uh, justice activities. But there was something about the Riverside public participation in social activism that had been brought to a fine art under Dr. Coffin. When I arrived at the church, I'm up there thinking that my primary job, you preach the gospel and the people will explore the social justice implications of what you preached about. There's a difference between expecting them to explore it 
and you're being the champion and the lead director of how this institution goes about doing social justice, social activism. My emphasis was on preaching the gospel, which of course included giving perspectives of social justice and personal piety. But my, one of my first battles in the church that almost got me kicked out. Could you believe that, that very shortly after I arrived, people actually honestly said, you know, Forbes, he talks good, but he is not a coffin. He's not Bill Coffin. He, he, he's not as engaged as an impulse in the social activist profile that we've been used to. So the group got together to try to oust me. Y'all don't mind me telling you, I ain't telling you nothing that's not in the books, you know? Uh, so they wanted to oust me. By the way, I had been there less than a year almost when the big meeting was called and the word on the elevator was, we're gonna get rid of that. I guess they meant Negro. It, it, it sounded, it, it, some of them sounded like they were saying something else other than Negro, but we're gonna get rid of him. So come to the meeting. So let me give you this answer here. The night at the meeting, the atmosphere was so hostile hostile that you could cut it like an ice, piece of ice. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to the critique at certain point. It got to the place that I wish that I could have found the button to push like you do on an aircraft when you need to eject yourself from impending disaster. At that point, I had a recall from earlier that day, when I first started preaching, the Lord had given me an assignment of learning Psalm 27. And that day I had been in the hospital visiting a member. I had asked the lady, what is her favorite text? And she said, Psalm 27. So I had picked up my little Bible and read it for her. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war should rise up against me. In this will I be confident, etc. I read that to her. Coming down on the elevator, the spirit spoke to me and says, now you read the Psalm 27 for her, but you had forgotten that that's the Psalm I gave you the night I called you to preach. And I told you, I told you to recite it back to me. And you said, I can't recite it. I haven't learned it, but you tried and you did pretty good. It says, you got it in your heart. Before this night is over, you're gonna have to use it. But when the thing got really rough, Dr. Goatley, I sat there in my seat and my friends who were present in the meeting said at a certain point, while I'd been there frightened, panicked, like, good gosh. They said my countenance changed. 
And when my countenance changed, the tenor of the meeting changed. And after that, people say, well, if we just didn't, we don't want you to have to be coughing, but we just didn't understand what your approach was going to be to leading us into our role in this community. Let me tell you something. What, what changed the tenor of the meeting? I sat there and I remembered the Psalm 27. I didn't open my mouth. I simply said, because God had forced me to learn it by heart. The year 1957, when I was called to ministry, I sat there and I said, I said, that song brought me assurance of the presence of the Lord with me in the context. And I began to engage the context in more shared explanation of what my ministry was about. And I felt that I pretty much figured out how to do the activism. I finally led them one day when our report came back from our endowment, led the congregation to invest $10 million of their endowment to do work with youth, with education, with these aspects of the community. I, I finally figured out how to do it. But I had to recognize I could not come in assuming that the good old preachman in the old place was gonna be quite adequate to command their respect and their response. A word to our listeners, Lot Carey's Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving podcast is funded by the Lilly Endowment through its Thriving in Ministry initiative. We'll be right back with more from the interview. Since 1897, the Lot Carey Global Christian Missional Community has helped churches to extend the Christian witness around the world. We collaborate with indigenously-led communities to bear good and faithful witness to Christ Jesus through ministries of evangelism, compassion, empowerment, and advocacy in Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, Europe, North America, Oceania, and South America. Together, we are touching lives with transforming love. You too can help to extend the Christian witness throughout the world. Visit us at lotcary.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for praying for and investing in the good news globally through word and deed. Welcome back to the Lot Carry Podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving. 
I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie, the learning coordinator of Lot Carey's Thriving in Ministry program. Each week in this podcast, my colleague, Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goatley, interviews a prominent Black pastoral leader to gain insight for flourishing in ministry. Dr. James A. Forbes, Jr., when, when a pastor has experienced accusation, assault, attack, injury in the life of a church, but the Lord has called him or her there. Can you say something about how do you, how do you minister in a way where that injury does not uh, damage the way that you represent the Lord and the way that you serve? It's fascinating that God didn't send Moses without at the crucial point, having an Aaron he could talk to. And Paul and Silas had to talk. And they disagreed, but they had to come to some agreement. So when perplexities emerge beyond your pay grade that you don't think you're smart enough for to handle gracefully, you got to have somebody to talk to. Can you imagine the blessing of having Gardner Taylor as a Brooklyn pastor and you're over in Manhattan and you calling up Dr. Taylor said, Dr. Taylor, I got to talk to you about this problem. Dr. Taylor, I, 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 need some, I, I need some clarity now on this thing. Dr. Taylor would say, yes, mm-hmm, yes. Yeah, I, I dare you to try to have serious ministry without a colleague with whom you can converse about the complexities of the problem. So we talk, we talk, ends up, and I explain to Dr. Taylor what's happening. And if I didn't like the way it went down, and, and but I had to do something about this problem. And, and Doc, you know, yeah, yes, so fatherly he was, you know, yes, yes, you're exactly right. It's something, something, something has to, something has to be done about that. He said, you think this might save my life? He says, something has to be done about it. If you talk to the Lord, the Lord will help you to discover what has to be done, but that's not enough. He said, the Lord will also show you when it needs to be done. Did you hear that? If you, now, if you can't deal with subtlety to get out of the ministry, there's a what and there's a when. And I want to, I want to thank Dr. Taylor on Hallelujah Boulevard in the high place for counseling me when I needed it. But then there was something else. Sometimes you can't get Dr. Taylor. Sometimes your colleague may not have the comforting or clarifying word you need. So you do what I did too. I want to offer this to everybody. You, you say there are 50 people in your cohort. 
I would like to ask all 50 of them to invest money in a comfortable recliner because at Riverside on the 10th floor, there was an office that used to be used by Harry Emerson Fosdick. I would go up to the office when it was too rough for me, when I didn't know what to do. I'd sit in the recliner and I say to the Lord, Lord, you need to help me. I, I, so I've come and I'm going to wait right here until you tell me something about what I need to do. And I sit in the recliner. An hour later, after having fallen asleep in the recliner, I'd wake up. And I said, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I came for counseling, but could not even pay attention long enough to hear what you were telling me to do. Now, Reverend Goatley, you won't believe this because you think it's just a preacher's tale. If this happened one time, it happened at least 10 times. So I'm apologizing, Lord, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. And God says to me, don't worry about it. While you were asleep, I took care of it. But I want you to know that there are some problems you can figure out by yourself. Other problems, colleagues will safely guide you through the troubled places. Some of them, you have to wait and talk to the Lord about it. And sometimes the Lord will tell you something. And sometimes the Lord, I'm not saying all the time, sometimes the Lord will let you go to sleep in the recliner. And while you sleep for that hour, Lord will finagle, find a way to uh, lead you safely home. Lead you safely home. Yeah, yeah. So th that's a testimony. Test listen, you... Are testimonies acceptable on this part, conversation? Otherwise, you know, you might let me know. I can, I can be more discursive and, you know, and with concepts, et cetera. But anyway, that's, that's, that's testimony. Your testimonies are, are a blessing to us. Um, what, what brings you the most joy as a pastor? I think one of my great joys is when the Lord shows me something essential to life and the struggles of my people. The Lord shows you something that's not just another wonderful idea, but shows you something that has life 
and death significance. Now, that, now I'm going to tell you something. That's a good feeling to me. Just talking about what brings me great joy. It brings me good feeling when the Lord shows me something that is not just a ho-hum idea, but is an idea that has the capacity to bring truth and light in saving distance of the people I have to serve. That's it. I think it brings me special joy when the Lord intimates to me something that ought to be done that when I do it, it proves to be so important that it is very clear that if the Lord were not communicating me, with me what I ought to do, I would never have thought about it. And it turns out to be a major event in the life of the community that God put me up to. It could be simply a matter of calling someone on the phone. And when you're, you, the answer you said, this is Dr. Ford. Oh, Dr. Ford. I, I can't tell you how much I thank you for calling. I wasn't even thinking about them. Didn't even have them on my mind. The Lord told me to call them. I call them and they act like they would love me the rest of my life because I did that. When the Lord puts you up to something, there you go. That's another way of talking. Not only when the Lord tells you something, but when it's very obvious to you that the Lord put you up to something, commandeered your attention to that particular action. Or when I experience myself as being used as an instrument of transformation, of healing, of serious illumination, that feels pretty good. Or when you come through a storm, and you're on the other side of the abyss. And your soul looks back and wonders how I got over. And when you discover that for better or for worse, your leadership impacted the situation that you were dealing with in ways that only God could have led you. So the discovery and it doesn't always happen, but the discovery that you had life-generating impact. Is that enough? Pick out of that whatever you want to, any of that. What's the best advice somebody gave you uh, about pastoral leadership? See, I mean, you don't understand that my dad was a bishop, and he was in charge of stuff. And uh, I want to follow that model. I want to be a take charge pastor. Take charge, right? I think somebody told me, Forbes, I, mean, I know, I, listen, I know you're the son of the bishop. And I know the bishop appointed you here. But say, brother, don't use your power before you get it. That, 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 that's, pretty, <laughs> that's pretty good advice. Don't, 
don't don't use your power before you get it. That's good advice. Um, I think somebody told me, well, you understand, I was the valedictorian in my high school. So I mean, that gives you a sense that you're smart. I had to learn the hard way. I hope you can understand what I mean. I was so smart that people come into me and they just tell me sort of what they've been going through and everything. They got some problem and everything. I listened to it a little bit. I'm talking about young preacher now. And almost because I'm so smart, I could figure out what was wrong with them before they even got to the punchline of what their problem was. And because I'm smart, I need to show how smart I am. So what could be more smart than to give you the answer to your problem even before you've raised the question? Ain't that smart? I had to learn, and I, I really think I want to thank clinical pastoral education for this. Try not to allow yourself to be tempted to be so smart that you tell people things about themselves that they've been trying to deny for the last decade. Don't, don't indulge in trying to reveal to something about people that they don't want to know themselves especially in a counseling situation. You know how hard they've been trying to deny knowing that? And here you come up and blow their cover with your unconsecrated intelligence. The point is some things have to be mutually discovered. And if you tell me something that I ain't prepared to hear before I'm prepared to hear it, I may hate you the rest of, you may hate me the rest of your life. Preachers have to learn that. You know, you know what, you know what was wrong, but I dare you to tell it if they don't want to know it. Does that make any sense, Doctor Goldley? It makes a lot of sense, and you you are helping uh, many of us uh, today, and anybody who has ears to hear. Oh, we'll be blessed. I have one more question for you. We have uh, people who are pastors, who aspire to be pastors, who are preparing to be pastors uh, from across the country and around the world who are listening to our podcast. And what one word of advice would you like to offer someone about flourishing in ministry? It just so happens that right now I'm working on a project and that project is related to the Mother Emmanuel Nine that were martyred June 17, 2015, Charleston, South Carolina. And in preparation for that work, I inquired what parable were they discussing when they were slaughtered? 
when they were murdered. Turns out that it was the parable of the sower. You're going to hear a lot about it. Every one of you will hear about this eventually. But the thing that I want to mention is that we call it the parable of the sower. It's the parable of the soil also. Because Jesus says some fell on the sideline, others thorny ground, others stony ground, but some, was, some were good soil. For pastoring and ministry, there are all sorts of expectations of people and all sorts of measurements of success. The issue is that Jesus sowed the seeds and they were the seeds of the kingdom. Anybody that's going to be in ministry, as quickly as you can, make up your mind what kind of soil you want to be for the flowering forth, the budding, and productivity unto the kingdom. Not yourself, not your family heirloom, not your legacy. That if you Make up your mind, because you got basically two options. You can be the soil of obstruction of God's will, or you can be good soil for the seeds of God's plans, God's ministry, God's beloved community that God's going to make. Before you get to running, decide, for God I'll live, for God I'll die. Lord, I want to do your will. Lord, I want to do not my will, but thine be done. Get clear what the objective is in your ministry. And let it be that you establish a relationship with God through the spirit that the gospel of Jesus Christ that you claim you're going to be preaching is actually the center aspiration of all that you do and all the rest will happen so you will bear the fruit of the spirit as you also sustain a constant relationship with the spirit i mean if if that much is in in order then the flourishing will come and i would wish them to think flourishing actually reminds us of the word flower. Yeah, but with any object that's a fruit tree, is not just the flower, it's the fruit. And the fruit ultimately is an externalization of the root. So that if people can avoid surface assessments of their success and think of the root of their faith, think of the fruit of the spirit and recognize this. I checked out, checked out with Jesus. Jesus on the cross was not flourishing, but don't give up on the brother. And you at a particular point 
may not seem to be flourishing, but until the end of resurrection day, don't throw yourself or your ministry away. God has a way of confirming Romans 8.28. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and to those who are engaged in fulfilling the purposes of that God. That's pretty much the word I'd offer on this pilgrimage. Dr. James A. Forbes, Jr., the Senior Minister Emeritus of the Riverside Church in New York City. Thank you, Dr. Forbes, for sharing wisdom and insight about flourishing in ministry. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today for Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, a weekly podcast from Lot Carey as we listen in on conversations with prominent pastoral thought leaders. Join us next week for a conversation with a new guest and fresh insights. Wisdom from the Black Church for the whole church. I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie. Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving is produced in partnership with Good Faith Media. Music by Makita McQuarrie. Share the word with those who need to hear it. Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, wherever you get your podcasts. Also listen online at lotcarry.org. Mm-hmm.